Well, I am continuing on through the book of Mark, and Anthony did a great job teaching on Mark 9 and 10 last week, and he talked about balancing and reconciling the spiritual with the physical, right? And he went through like three instances where the spiritual kind of conflicts, or what he described as has a scuffle with the physical, and we had to kind of reconcile that. One of them was like the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter and, and John and Yeshua are up there, and Yeshua's he like transforms in this radiant light, right? And, uh, and then what does Peter do? He's like, can I make you these physical shelters where we can stay? Because Moses and Elijah were there on this mountain as he's transfiguring. And he talks about how sometimes we struggle in our physical mind to reconcile with the spiritual. When sometimes it's so much bigger than that, you know? And he did a really good job. And that, that's available uh, on our Podbean or our podcast. If you'd like to listen to the audio of that, get caught up. But we're going through the book of Mark. Normally, we would study through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, every week. And we would do a portion of the Torah every week. And we've done that for four years. Uh, really, five years. Our congregation is five years old, so we've done that five years now. Well, we're going to pause on that, and we're going to go through the book of Mark, and then we're going to go through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter. And just anything, we're going to pull out insight-wise and teach it to you guys. And uh, yeah, but if you'd like to go back and refresh yourselves on the Torah portions... Um, we've got four or five years worth of audio recordings and teachings that you can listen to, and I'll help you with finding those. If you need help finding those, just give me a call. But today we find ourselves in Mark 11. Who wrote the book of Mark? Yeah, we assume Mark did. Yeah, John Mark, the guy that was a traveling companion to Apostle Paul. Uh, although it's technically an anonymous work, all right? Where, where, which order is it in terms of the, the age of the Gospels? Right? There's four Gospels. Is Mark the newest? Is it the oldest? Is it somewhere in the middle? What do you guys think? It's the oldest of the four Gospels. Yeah, commonly accepted as the oldest of the Gospels. Okay? Um, and then we divide the Gospels in these two different groups. You have um, the book of John, <laughs> the Gospel of John, which is like a category of itself. And then what do we call the other three Gospels? We call them synoptic Gospels. We call them synoptic because... They are like kind of synthesized with each other in terms of the events and the major themes. They all seem to kind of align with one another. And so we call those three the synoptic gospels. And Mark is the first of the synoptic gospels, the oldest of the synoptic gospels. Then if you remember when we kicked off our study in Mark, I used this analogy, the, kind of the story. I said, you know, my, my father-in-law, Gene, he likes to tell a story about living on Tampa Bay, right? And I, I said, you know, he, he will tell these stories about growing up in Tampa Bay and, and taking and, and shooting seagulls with a shotgun or something, you know, back in the, in, the, in the 60s and 70s when Tampa Bay was very remote at that point. Or he talked about seeing like this, this uh, weird mystical creature called the skunk ape. Or we talked about how there would be planes that would fly over the Tampa Bay in the middle of the night and drop large packages of drugs in the Tampa Bay. Drug smugglers from, from Cuba or Miami would drop them in Tampa Bay, and, and then boats would go out and pick them up and bring them into Tampa. And then so, and he, he would remember seeing these things or experiencing some of these things. And, and I talked about his older brother, Jim, right? And his older brother is, is looking at it from a different perspective. And I got to know Jim. Um, I, I would talk to Jim quite regularly, and he would often tell me some of the same stories. Or if they were sitting in the same room, this interesting thing would happen as they're telling the same story. Jim would be like, no, 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 you remember this part though. You know, he would add in more details. Like this happened first. And that's kind of, I talked about, that's kind of the essence of the gospels is that you have these, we could say brothers sitting in a room together, all sharing their perspective of the same stories. And sometimes it seems like they contradict sometimes. Or do they? (laughs) And then sometimes they just add extra layers of details on top. We're gonna talk about one of these seeming contradictions today. And we'll, we'll kind of flesh that out and see if we can't reconcile that today. But Mark 11, we're going to read it. We're going to jump right into it. And I want you to think about this question as we begin reading. What is the most climactic aspect of Mark 11? What's the most exciting story that, that you think you pull from this chapter? You ready? Mark 11. As they were approaching Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, near Bet Page and Beit Anya, by the Mount of Olives, Yeshua sent two of his Talmudim, his disciples, with these instructions. Go into that village ahead of you, and as soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there that has never been ridden. Untie it 
and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it and he will send it right away. Now, I think Matthew goes into more detail about what prophecy this is fulfilling. Mark doesn't go into that detail, but you can look at, look at that in Matthew. So they went off and they found a colt in the street tied to a doorway and they untied it. The bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying that colt? And they gave the answer, Yeshua had told them to give and they let him continue. They brought the colt up to Yeshua and threw their ropes on it and he sat on it. Many people carpeted the road with their clothing while others spread green branches which they had cut in the fields. Those who were ahead and those behind shouted, and in Aramaic it could be like um, Hoshiana, which means like, please save us. Uh, Hoshia is like a deliverance, like give us salvation. Na is like an emphatic statement, uh, like please, please, may it happen. So you put those two together, you have Hoshiana. Like, have you ever heard the word manna? That's two words. Ma, na. What is it? Ma, ma, what is it? Na is please or tell me. You know, or, or it's like a, like, may it come, may, like, make this happen. Like, tell me. So, ma, na is like, what is it, please? Okay, so, hoshiana is like, please save us. And then they say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. Blessed is the king, the coming kingdom of our father, David. And we talked about in the past how it's so important that Mark continually ties Yeshua back to the rightful kingdom of David. And he says, you are in the highest heaven. Please deliver us. Hoshiana. Yeshua entered Yerushalayim. He went into the temple courts. Now pause a second here. I wonder if many of these people are thinking that this man is going to come in and claim his rightful throne on the temple now and then spark a rebellion against the Roman authorities. Like, there's no better time to do that than, than the Passover season, if you think about it. You have the, the, the size of the city of Jericho is probably tripping, tripling in its population during the season of Passover. You've got all these Jewish males there, and they're thinking, what is the theme of Passover? Redemption from bondage. So you've got triple the population, you've got a theme about liberation, and then in comes Yeshua. And they're proclaiming him the, the, the coming kingdom of our father David. And there's Romans all around watching and, and, and occupying the land of Israel at that time. Do you think maybe they're hoping for that spark to be set and that fire to be ignited of rebellion? Well, he goes into the temple. This is the epicenter of their faith. If a rebellion is going to start, it's going to start here. And it's going to start in this season of the year. So he walks into the temple courts. He took a good look at everything. But since it was now late, he went out with the twelve to Beit Anya. The next day, as he came back from Beit Anya, he felt hungry. Spotting in the distance a fig tree uh, in leaf with leaves on it, he went to see if he could find anything to eat on it. When he came up to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it wasn't fig season. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his Talmudim heard what he said. Now, he curses this fig tree and it shrivels up in other gospels. It talks about how it shrivels up. And I remember he used to think, like, what did the fig tree do? You know, did this have leaves, you know? Why did he curse it? He says here that it wasn't even fig season. It's, and we talked about this a few years ago. I taught on, this, on this, this interaction here. Basically, he gave the tree is giving the impression that it has fruit. But it doesn't have fruit. Make sense? And we talked about how that, that's a spiritual lesson for us. If we give the impression that we're righteous, give the impression, oh, we're doing the right thing, we have all this false humility, all this false righteousness, but we don't have the fruit to back it up. Be careful. On reaching Yerushalayim, he entered the temple courts and began to drive out those who were carrying on business there. I'd be thinking, wait, there's the temple and there's people doing business there? Both the merchants and their customers. He also knocked over the desk of the money changers. He upset the benches of the pigeon dealers and refused to let anyone carry merchandise through the temple courts. Then, as he taught them, he said, isn't it written in the Tanakh, in the, in the Hebrew scriptures? My house will be called a house of prayer for all the Gentiles, all the Goyim, but you have made it into a den of robbers. 
So the head priest and the Torah teachers heard what he said and tried to find a way to do away with him. They were afraid of him because the crowds were utterly taken by his teaching. When evening came, they left the city. In the morning, as the Talmudim passed by, they saw the fig tree with the, the, the tree withered all the way to its roots. And Peter, Kepha, he remembered and said to Yeshua, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has dried up. And he responded, have the kind of trust that comes from God. Yes, I tell you that whoever does not doubt in his heart, but trust that what he says will happen can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea and it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, trust that you are receiving it and it will be yours. And when you stand in prayer, like in the Amidah, right? If you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may also forgive your offenses. Some manuscripts have uh, verse 26 there, which says, but if you do not forgive, your father in heaven will not forgive your offenses. Which that lines perfectly up with Matthew 6, 14. If you don't forgive other people, your heavenly father will not forgive you. They went back to Yerushalayim and he was walking in the temple courts. And there came to him the head priest, the Torah teachers and the elders. And they said to Yeshua, they said to him, what smicha, what authority do you have that authorizes you to do these things? And who gave you this authority to do them? Yeshua said to them, I will ask you one question. He loves to answer questions with questions, right? He said, I will ask you one question. He's like, I'm doing the, the question asking here. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's talk about the immersion of John, the immersion of Yochanan. You remember the guy who was out immersing people in the wilderness, and remember he was eating the, the, the locusts, and he, he was wearing the camel skin, and, and he wasn't really liked by the religious authorities in, in Jerusalem. He was kind of a separatist, and he was kind of calling out the corruption that was going on in Jerusalem and in the temple, okay? That's why some people think that maybe he was aligned with the... Uh, the sect at Qumran, the sect at Qumran were the Dead Sea caves, you know? You know what I'm talking about where they found the scrolls, the Dead Sea scrolls? There was a sect, there was a community of Jews living there that were comprised of Levites. And uh, some people speculate that maybe they were the Essenes, but we don't know for sure. But they were separatists and they wrote a lot about the corruption that was going on in Jerusalem. And they wanted to be away from that and corrupt, that, that corruption that was going on in Jerusalem. Maybe the, the merchants being one of that. And they discussed it among themselves. They said, man, if we say that it's from heaven, then he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say, uh, maybe from a human source, they were afraid of the people, for they all regard, regarded John as a genuine prophet. So they answered Yeshua, we don't know. Then he replied, I won't tell you by what smicha, by what authority I do these things. So let's ask what was the most climactic part of that story? What'd you guys think? The what? The fig tree, okay. Any other thoughts? What was the most exciting part of Matthew 11? The what? Chasing out the money changers. Anything else? Anybody agree money changers, pretty climactic story? Yeah, Michael. I would think it would be when they come to challenge him, he shows them where their heart is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I actually saw Mark is very action-packed, isn't it? For me, the most climactic experience in this story, the most exciting and, and action-packed story in Mark 11 was the turning of the tables, the purging of the temple, you could say. And it is one of the stories, this, this story, I should say, is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. All four. Okay, it's very important that he did this. But we got to ask ourselves this question, and many of you already know this answer, but who were the money changers? Who are these people, these merchants that were set up in the temple that, that apparently when Yeshua comes in, he gets triggered and he's like, what are you doing in here? How come we don't know much about them? Why, don't, why doesn't the Bible talk about, you know, does, does the Bible say, hey, you're supposed to set up booths and sell stuff, you're supposed to change money, you're supposed to do all this? That's why it's so important you understand the historical backdrop of the New Testament and understand who the, the money changers were. Um, but the Greek for these money, money changers is kolubistes, kolubistes, which is literally translated as a banker or one who converts money. Okay? Kolubistes. It's Greek. The one who is a banker or one who converts money. So uh, when I go to Uganda, um, and like Michael contests this, 
when you go to Uganda, you know, you take U.S. dollars with you, and they'll accept U.S. dollars there for some things, but most of the time not. You have to change your money into what's called shillings. They use the old British shilling system. And so usually when you're in the airport or something like that, you know, you go in and, and you take a couple hundred U.S. dollars and you change them into shillings. And there's something like 3,500 shillings or more than that, like 3,550 um, 3, shillings for one dollar. So you can imagine if you've got $400, that's 400 times 3,550, and that's how many shillings they're going to give you. It's a big wad of cash, right? It's not worth that much. It's only $400, and you got to live off it for while you're there. But anyways, why do we do that? Why do we change money? Because when you travel from one place to another, the currency changes with it, does it not? Okay. So many of you have traveled overseas, or you've gone to different countries, and they use different money. I like to collect money from overseas. And this is one of the jars I have. I probably have thousands of coins from different parts of the world that some of them are very new. Some of, can you open this and get me some, Marvin? And Marvin's a, a coin nerd as well. He collects coins and sometimes he gives me coins. Uh-oh, is this stuff? You got it? Yeah, just dump some of those out. In here, let's put them in my hand here. So here's some paper money. And I don't know where this is from. I think, I think um, Jim Laney gave this to me. This is from the Central Bank of Myanmar. All right? And it looks nothing like a U.S. dollar. And... Uh, let me get some of these coins here, though. Okay, cool. These are perfect. Thank you. Oh, we're dropping them on the floor. So these are um, these are Chinese coins from these are like collectors' coins, and they're from uh, like this particular dynasty, uh, and they're just made of like aluminum. They're really not like there's no intrinsic value to these coins, but they sound cool and they look cool. They look like they have a lot of value. But uh, you know, if I if I took these over to uh, I was at the Piggly Wiggly yesterday in Bonifay. <laughs> If I took these and I was like, okay, hey, I want to get some uh, chicken fingers and I want to get some honey Dijon mustard <laughs> and uh, I want to get a sweet tea and I'm there at the deli, right? And they give me all that stuff and they say, okay, they'd be $7.56. If I took this handful of this Chinese money and, and I slapped it on the counter, and I'm like, all right, bye. And they would be like, wait, what? Wait, what is this? What is this stuff? What? It looks interesting, but this is not, this is, we don't understand. We don't, this is not compute, right? They would have to like look up what these coins are on the internet, how much they're worth, and whether or not like that was seven dollars and fifty-six cents worth of stuff. They wouldn't accept this though. With the, the sweet lady working the deli at Piggly Wiggly would look at me like I got two heads, <laughs> right? She would say, "You're not going anywhere with that chicken and sweet tea until you give me seven dollars and fifty-six cents." This would not be worth anything to her. You know what I'm saying? She could not put gas in her car with this. I would have to convert this to U.S. dollars because it's worthless in today's in, in this economy. Now I could take this to China and go to the equivalent of the Chinese Piggly Wiggly, and maybe we have some room to work with, right? Maybe. But currency changes over time as well. Um, I have at home. I have this um, this this ten dollar note from the Confederate States of America. <laughs> now, if I took that to the Piggly Wiggly in Bonifay, Florida, they might honor that one. <laughs> But more than likely, they'd be like, wait, what? You know what's going on here? But currency changes. Now, the same thing applies to the ancient Israeli culture, okay? The same thing applies to temple times. If I was coming from Antioch, or I was coming from Rome as a Jewish male, and I was making the pilgrimage into Jerusalem for Passover, and I had with me some Roman denarii, and they had the face of a man that's hated by most Jews. And I went in and I wanted to pay my temple tax, the half shekel tax. And I took some Roman denarii and I dropped them in the thing. That would be offensive to them, would it not? Number one, there is a graven image on the coin, which is against Torah law. You, to, have, to have a graven image of a, of a man represented on a coin is not kosher, let alone be able to take that as a temple tax, as a payment for the temple tax. Additionally, even if it said half shekel on it, which it wouldn't because it's a Roman denarii, I gotta figure out, is this a half shekel? What is this even made of? What is the composition of this? Because it's gotta be half of a shekel of pure silver to count as the temple tax. And this might just be like aluminum. I don't know whether the denarii, maybe just copper or something like that. It's, it's not fulfilling that, the, the half shekel tax. So what we gotta do is we gotta take this up, we gotta take it to these people called the cool, uh, I'm sorry, kulubistes, the money changers. And we gotta convert it 
to the rightful coin. The coin we know is pure silver, and we know the weight of that coin. Now, there would be these men, these money changers would know. They would know, okay, one denarii is like this much in shekels. Okay, we can convert this. Ah, but it's going to cost you something, right? Because when I go to Uganda and I go up to the money changer there at the airport, you think they just do that just because of like, the goodness of their heart? They're just sitting there at 3 o'clock in the morning when my flight gets in, and they're like, oh, yeah, here you are, here. Let's go ahead and change your money into shillings. No fee whatsoever. No. They take a little bit of money. They, they charge you a fee to change your money into shillings. All right? It's a business for them. Well, that was going on in the temple courts. And so they say, well, this money is not kosher. Let's change it into half shekels. It's going to cost you this much, and I'm going to take a little more off the top. But the other thing that would happen is, uh, is they would sell animals there. So if I'm coming from Antioch, which is a several day journey for me, do you think I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll up in there with like a lamb, having like traveled all that way with a lamb or like a cage with a couple pigeons in it? No, I'm not gonna do that. I know that they're gonna sell that there at the temple. So I'm gonna be like, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just buy that there, right? When you get there, it's kind of like when I went to the Ark Encounter this past summer. I went up there with the family and you know, they sell things there in the Ark Encounter. They sell like bottled water, they sell, you know, hamburgers and hot dogs and all that kind of stuff there. So if you are like, you know, a, a newbie homeschool parent and you don't know yet to make your kids sandwiches there in the parking lot like we do, and you go in there and your kids start fussing and they're hungry and stuff, then you gotta, you gotta buy one of their, their products, right? You gotta buy their bottle of water, you gotta buy their sandwiches. Now, do you think they're just like normal market value in the middle of Noah's Ark? No, no. It, it is like three times the cost of buying, you know, what it, co what it costs just to make a, make a turkey sandwich in the parking lot at the car. Right? So they kind of scalp you there because they, they realize this person's not going to walk around with a lunchbox full of sandwiches for, for their six homeschool kids they have in, behind them. You know? <laughs> we know we, we can make a buck off of this. Well, that's what was going on in the temple. It's like they would say, okay, so-and-so, Gabe, he's not going to travel all from Rome, and he's not going to bring a lamb with him all that way. He's not going to bring a couple of pigeons with him. They might get away. He's going to buy one here. So let's set up this enterprise where we could, we could sell them animals here in the temple courts, but we're not going to sell it at market, fair, fair market value. We're going to jack up the price a little bit. We're going to make it like three or four times more expensive to buy an animal here because you're paying for convenience than if you were to bring one all the way from home. Make sense? So that's what's going on. That's what these guys. Thirdly, these money changers were bankers. Okay? Did you guys know that the temple in the first century served as a bank, as a treasury? You could bring, like, let's say you're, you're a wealthy landowner or you, you're a business owner and you had tens of thousands of dollars worth of, worth of income. You wouldn't just keep that in your home. You know, you might. You run the risk of that. But did you know that the temple treasury served as a, as a bank? So, so if I had all this money, all this gold and all this silver, I could take it to the temple. I could give it to the priests and they would make a note of it and they would actually keep it in the temple treasury. You know that? It was actually a bank. And there was some lending practices that were, that, were, that were going on in the temple. You can read all about this in the Mishnah. It talks about how these money changers, what they would do and, and, and how, much, how much they would charge and all this other stuff. We're not going to get into that too much today. But I did want to talk about these money changers a bit. So Yeshua has two target groups here as he's coming in, as he's flipping these tables. Number one, those who are buying and selling things in the temple courts. Apparently, he doesn't like that. Apparently, he doesn't want any buying and selling going on in the temple courts. Number two, he's got an issue with the money changers, doesn't he? They seem to be uh, taking advantage of people's need. They seem to be setting up these barriers like, oh, we can't take those coins. Or we can convert that, but it's got to be, you know, we're going to charge like 20% on converting that over to, to our kosher money. He had a problem with that. Why? Verse 12. If you look at that real fast. Mark 11, verse 12. He says... Mark eleven twelve. He says, you have turned it into a what? A den of robbers. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, and you've turned it into a den of robbers. Who is he quoting here? If, if your Bible, if you're looking at your Bible, does it have it like in italics, or does it have it bold, or does it have it like, does it have it like different? He's quoting something from the Bible. What is he quoting from? He's quoting from the book of Isaiah, chapter 56. Chapter 56. If you, if you can't go there real quick, Isaiah chapter 56. We're going to read a little bit about it. Because he's, he's making a direct quotation from the Bible. He says in Isaiah 56, starting in verse 6. 
He says, to the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. Now that word join there is the word lava. It's where we get the word levi, a Levite, to, to, to attach to. To the foreigners who lava themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to, basically to worship him. To love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Shabbat without profaning it, and who hold fast. That, that word that's, that hold fast there is the word chazikim. It's like to be strong in it, to be determined in it. Those who chazikim, who, who are like strong to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house. It will be like a house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called, here's where he's quoting from, a house of prayer for kol ha'amim. That's where we're in that psalm. Baruch haba le'eretz Yisrael le'kol ha'amim. All people. Baruch haba. So blessed are those who come. Kol ha'amim. Of all people. Thus declares the Lord God, who gathers the dispersed of Israel, I will bring others to besides my people Israel. That's pretty exciting, right? How many of you are those others too, like I am? Yeah. So there's where he's quoting from. Yeshua is quoting from Isaiah 56. And he's like, he's invoking that on them and saying, guys, you turn this into a dinner of robbers. Remember Isaiah 56? How our, my father wants this to be a house of prayer for Koha Amin, all people who hold fast to the covenant and who refuse to profane the Shabbat. We could paraphrase Yeshua's words here by saying the following. He's saying to these people, your love of money and your quest to earn a profit are thwarting the very plans of God, which include all nations coming to his house to pray and to offer burnt offerings. Your desire for wealth is limiting the true access to God's presence. Sound familiar? The priesthood, those entrusted with doing the connecting, the lava'in, we could say, have become corrupted. We could paraphrase them in saying, you are robbing people of the world, the access, the free access to God's presence. And not only that, but you're robbing God of their devotion and worship. Not a, not a small accusation, right? So naturally, the heir of the house, Yeshua, has no choice but to clean it out. He's like, this cannot happen here. I have to get it out of here. But did you know, I mentioned earlier, this happens in all four Gospels. So I'm going to use my whiteboard here and do what us in the education world call comparative analysis. Comparative analysis. So let's go through these one by one. Now, there are only four verses each, I think, three or four verses each. We just read Mark 15, Mark 11, 15, 19. I'm going to write Mark up here. Now, with this cleansing of the temple, what do we see? Describe to me what we saw of this. Yeah, there were, there were money changers. Anything else? Yeah, people selling things. All right, I'm going to have to freeze Marvin. People selling and buying. When does this happen? Towards the beginning of his ministry? Towards the end? At the end. And what time of year is it? What holy day is upon us? Passover. Pesach. Yeah. What else? Any other? Yeah, Jim. Yeah, we could say we could say deception. Did he turn the tables over? In Mark, he did. Whoops, I got that. Turn the tables. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to the next one. Go with me to Matthew twenty-one, twelve through seventeen. Matthew twenty-one, twelve through seventeen. Let's read that real quick. Real quick interaction here. Matthew 21, 12 through 17. 
Matthew 21, 12 through 17. Yeshua entered the temple grounds. Now this is towards the end of his ministry, Passover season. Yeshua entered the temple grounds and he drove out those who were doing business there, both the merchants and their customers. He upset the desk of the money changers and he knocked over the benches of those who were selling the pigeons. Also gives us another detail, they're selling pigeons. He said to them, it has been written. Where is he quoting from again? Isaiah 56, good, you guys are listening, awesome. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're turning it into a den of robbers. Okay, so let's describe what's going on there. A lot, a lot of the same things, right? We've got the money changers. Let's do like a ditto thing here. We've got people selling and buying. What are they, what are they selling and buying? Pigeons. We've got ending of his ministry, right? It's Passover season, right? We can say that there's deception going on, and then there's the tables, right? Oh, one thing we left off is he's quoting Isaiah 56, right? There's Isaiah 56 happening. Yeah, both of them. He quotes Isaiah 56. All right. We're halfway there. Let's keep going. We've got Luke 19. Turn to Luke 19. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So Luke 19. Luke 19. It's going to pick up in verse 45. Luke 19.45. But hanging in there? You with me still? Then Yeshua entered the temple grounds, and he began driving out those doing business there. And he said to them, the Tanakh, the scripture says, what is he about to quote? Isaiah 56. My house is to be called a house of prayer. Notice he left off for all nations. But you have made it into a den of robbers. Man, almost, almost identical, except that the pigeon thing is left off, isn't it? Did he turn over tables in Luke? Okay. No pigeons in Luke. No, it doesn't say he turned over tables. It happens at the end of his ministry, during Passover. We've got um, Passover. We've got deception going on and, and thievery, right? We've got no, no tables, though, that I saw, right? Am I right? Okay. Um, and then we, we've got Isaiah 56, though. Okay, one more. Now, these three Gospels are called the what? Synoptic Gospels. So it's only natural that if John is in a different category, you think John's going to be a little different? <laughs> Let me prepare you. These are the only, these only things you notice like this. Only when you really read the Gospels like on a, on a regular basis, on a... Like you sit down and read a gospel a day or something like that. There was one time I read a gospel a day for, I think it was like two weeks or three weeks. Um, and I picked up so much, you miss a lot if you don't, if you don't read it in like full, straight through like that. Uh, John chapter 2, and we're going to pick up in verse 13. John 2, 13. Now, John 2. Do you think it's at the beginning of his ministry? Or at the end of his ministry? Mm. Is it the beginning of his ministry? Or is it the end of his ministry? He just got immersed by John the Baptist. He was just like tempted by Satan. It's at the beginning of his ministry. And his ministry is three years, give or take. But it says right here in John 2, 13, it was almost time for the festival of Pesach, of Passover in Judah. So Yeshua went up to Yerushalayim. In the temple grounds, he found those who were selling cattle. They were selling sheep and pigeons and others who were sitting at tables exchanging money. And he made a whip from cords and he drove them all out of the temple grounds. The sheep and cattle as well. He knocked over the money changers' tables. He scattered their coins. And the pigeon sellers to him, he said, Get these things out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? His Talmudim later recalled that the Tanakh says, Wait a second. Is he quoting, the Tanakh? Is he quoting scripture there? And what is he quoting? Or what are, what are they recalling? Zeal for your house will consume me. Like Bob said, he's quoting Psalm 69. Or the, I shouldn't say he's quoting. The Talmudim, the disciples, are recalling Psalm 69. 
Zeal for your house will consume me, devour me. A little bit different, right? Let's talk about this. Let's analyze this now. I'm going to switch to a different color. So that helps people with uh, ADD like me. <laughs> so do we have money changers? Yes. yes, we do. Do we have people selling? Yes, we do. Yes, we got it. Do we have it at the beginning or the end of his ministry? It's at the start. It's at the start of his ministry. His ministry is going to go on for another almost three years at this point, according to John. What time of year do we have this starting? Or what time of year do we have this happening in John? Passover. Same thing. There's deception going on. There's tables that are being turned over. But what is he, what are they quoting? What do they what do they invoke in John 2? Psalm. Psalm 69. We don't see any mention of Isaiah 56, do we? And then we, we get like extra animals, we get that he has a whip, right? There's a lot more details in John. It seems to be a lot more dramatic in John, doesn't it? It's like, man, he is like way more triggered in John than he is in the other three. Right? What's going on there? And hey, do, do we have a problem we have to reconcile? Okay. Do what? Is it the beginning or is it the end? So we have a choice to make here. Yeah, we have a choice to make here. Is it the beginning of the ministry that he does this out? Does he drives out the merchants? Or is it the end of the ministry that he drives out the merchants? Or option C, as Jim Geiger said, is it both? Now, textual critics will say that John's gospel, because it's the oldest, is likely wrong, since all three synoptic gospels seem to align with each other. Others, in an attempt to hold to the infallibility of the Gospels, will claim that there were actually two events, that he did this twice. Which one do you hold to? Because we have a problem. And whenever there's a problem, remember in Hebraic thought, whenever there's a problem, it's an either or, throw in a both and see if it works. Let's do that. You ready? Go with me, Leviticus chapter 14. Leviticus 14. Like, whoa, we're going back to the Torah portions? Yes, briefly. Leviticus 14. If you don't know the Torah, you won't know what's going on here. Leviticus 14. Let's see if we can reconcile this weird situation. Before we read Leviticus 14, looking at verse 33. 14.33. Let me talk about this stuff called Sarahat. Can everybody say Sarahat? Let's see if I can spell it here. Sa. Sa-ra-at. Sa-ra-at. That's what's being talked about here, not the stuff called leprosy. Your English Bibles will probably have it as leprosy. That's false. Okay, it's not a disease whatsoever. It's sa-ra-at. Sa-ra-at is, uh, it roughly translates to corruption. Corruption. Something is corrupted. It can be your skin. It can be your clothing. It can be your home. Something is corrupted. All right? Sarahat. So I'm going to read Leviticus 14. We're going to read verses 33 to 47. And I'm going to put in the word Sarahat where it belongs in the original language. You ready? Leviticus 14, 33. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When you have entered the land of Canaan, which I'm giving you as a possession, and I put an infection of Sarahat. Who's putting the infection? God is. If I put that in a house, in the land you possess, then the owner of the house is to come and to tell the priest, it seems to me that there may be an infection in the house. The priest is to order the house to be emptied before he goes in to inspect the infection so that everything in the house won't be made unclean. Those going into the house won't be made unclean, right? Afterwards, the priest is to enter and inspect the house. He will examine the infection, and if he sees the infection is in the walls of the house with greenish or reddish depressions that seems to go deeper than the surface of the wall, he's to go out of the house to its door and seal up the house for seven days. The priest will come again. How many times is he coming? 
twice. He will come again to inspect it again. If he sees the infection has spread over its walls, he is to order them to remove the infected stones and throw them into some unclean place outside the city. Hmm. So what is being talked about here is sarahat. It's not a disease. It's a corruption. Now this corruption, the sarahat, is caused in, in the ancient Israeli imagination. Biblically speaking, it's caused by speaking slander against other people or having greed in your heart. So what gets you sarahat? Speaking evil about other people, even if it's true, or having greed in your heart. Tracking so far? So God puts Sarah on a home, they're talking, they're talking slander about people, or those people are greedy. It's a divine punishment. Let me prove it to you. Miriam is stricken with Sarah for speaking against Moses. Gehazi, he's punished for his greed and making a false oath to Elisha. Uzziah, is punished with sarahat for offering incense in the temple in defiance of the Kohanim. The key here in this story in reconciling all these together, is it the, is it the beginning, is it the ending, what is it? The answer lies in the number of visits the priest makes to the, inspect the house. What was the answer? Twice. If the house is cleansed after the first visit to the house, yet upon a second inspection, the corruption is evident again, the house must be destroyed. Or we could say, no stone left upon another. So what we have here is Yeshua, the high priest, we could say, you know, Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 12, Hebrews 10 kind of stuff. The high priest comes to inspect the house of his father twice. It is found to be corrupted. He, per the instructions, cleanses the home. John chapter 2. Then, upon a second look, the synoptics, he finds more corruption. What's the, step, what's the necessary step now, according to Leviticus 14? Destruction. So what we need here is Yeshua declaring its impending destruction. Go with me to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. This is the end of Yeshua's ministry. And he's giving what we call the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 23. We're going to read starting in verse 13 and go all the way to chapter 24. So he's inspected the house twice. He's found corruption twice. And here's what he says. Here's the prognosis, you could say. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers in Perushim, for you're shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, neither entering yourselves nor allowing those who wish to do so. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and you Pharisees. You go about over land and sea to make one proselyte, and when you succeed, you make him twice the son of hell as you are. Woe to you blind guides. You say if someone swears by the temple, he's not bound by his oath, but if he swears by the gold in the temple, he is bound. You blind fools. Which is more important, the gold or the temple which makes the gold holy? And you say, if someone swears by the altar, he's not bound by his oath. But if he swears by the offering on the altar, he is bound. Blind men. Which is more important, the sacrifice or the altar on which makes the sacrifice holy? So someone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And someone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who lives in it. And someone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. Woe to you, you hypocritical Torah teachers and Pharisees. You pay your tithes of mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the Torah. Justice, mercy, trust. These are the things that you should have attended to without neglecting the others. You're like blind guides straining out a gnat, meanwhile swallowing a camel. Woe to you Torah teachers and you Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence, like greed. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cups so the outside may be clean too. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and Pharisees. 
You're like whitewashed tombs, which look fine on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all kinds of rottenness. Likewise, you appear to people from the outside, like our fig tree, right? You appear from the outside to be good and honest, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and far from the Torah. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and Pharisees. You build tombs for the prophets and you decorate the graves of the righteous ones. And you say, had we lived when our fathers did, we would never have taken part in killing the prophets. And this you testify against yourselves that you are worthy descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then, finish what your father started. You snakes, you sons of snakes. How can you escape being condemned to hell, to get known? Therefore, I am sending you the prophets and sages and Torah teachers. Some of them you will kill. Indeed, you will have them executed on a stake as criminal. Some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so on you will fall the guilt for all the innocent blood that has ever been shed on earth, from the blood of the innocent Havel to the blood of Zechariah ben Berechiah, whom you murder between the temple and the altar. Yes, I tell you, all this will fall on this generation. Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, you kill the prophets. You stone those who are sent to you. How often I've wanted to gather you, your children, just as a hen gathers her chick chickens under her wings, but you refuse. Look, God is abandoning your house, leaving it desolate. For I tell you, from now on, you will not see me again until you say, Baruch Abba B'Shem Adonai. As Yeshua left the temple and was going away, his disciples came and called his attention to its buildings, but he answered them, You see all this? Yes. I tell you, it will all be totally destroyed. Not a single stone will be left upon another. There we have our prognosis. So I'm going to submit a possibility of reconciling these together. Is that Yeshua was following Matthew 14 and finding corruption in the home. You know, when the Romans came and destroyed the temple, they not only turned every stone off of it itself, they actually took sledgehammers and pulverized the big stones of the temple, turned them to dust. Now the western wall that's there, that's just a retaining wall. It's not, that's not the temple. It wasn't even part of the temple. But the temple itself is completely gone. So let's review. Did Yeshua love the temple? Now I've unfortunately heard people tell me that by him cleansing out the temple, what he's saying is like, hey, all this sacrifice stuff, all this temple stuff, you guys didn't get the memo. That's like done and over and archaic. God doesn't want to be worshipped this way. Come on, can get, get, get it through your heads. I gotta flip all these tables over. I gotta do all this. Like, get it through your heads. I, I've heard many of, uh, uh, of preachers and theologians teach that. But no, he had zeal for his temple. It says that he was consumed with zeal for his temple. What was the reason Yeshua spoke condemnation over the temple? Do you remember? Yeah, they were profiting off of the access to God. Woe to the men or women who profit off of access to God. Mm, you don't want to be guilty of doing that. Did he have a desire for all nations to come up to the temple? And to worship in the prescribed manner? Yes, it's right there. What was preventing that? The corruption was. Greed and baseless hatred. The sages say that baseless hatred and factionalism within the Jewish people at that time was so intense that as the Romans were laying siege to the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, that the Jews inside the city of Jerusalem were divided into four groups and were fighting each other as well as fighting off the Romans. They were killing each other within the city. Factionalism and baseless hatred. Let me ask you this. Do you desire to see his house restored? Now, I heard all of you singing, and it was beautiful singing. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. Thousands elsewhere. Do you mean that? Do you long to be in his house, in his presence? This is not God's house, by the way. This is just a building we rent. <laughs> I long for that. The 15th blessing of the Amidah says, Have mercy and return to Jerusalem, your city. May your presence dwell there as you have promised. Build it up now in our days for all time. Reestablish there the majesty of David, your servant. Blessed are you, Hashem, 
who rebuilds Jerusalem. Cause the offspring of your servant David to flourish and hasten the coming of your deliverance. We hope continually for your redemption. Blessed are you, O Lord, who assures our redemption. Be pleased with us and with the prayers of your people. Blessed are you, God, who restores your divine presence to Zion. So we pray that in the Amidah. We should long for his presence to be with us again. Like his Shekhinah, his divine presence where we can look and we can see it. Imagine that. So we know how the temple was lost. What must we do to merit its rebuilding? Avoid greed. Avoid factionalism and baseless hatred. Avoid slanderous speech. And desire and crave his presence. I like to say, don't live a purpose-driven life like Rick Warren tells you. Live a presence-driven life, craving his presence. What if I told you that he already is rebuilding the temple in a way? First Peter 2 says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, just crave the pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, you're like living stones. You're being built into a spiritual house to be like a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Messiah. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So Mark 11, we can now reconcile, not only reconcile, but see the deeper underlying significance of why he had to cleanse the temple twice, why he had to inspect it twice. So listen close. If you zoned out of everything I said this morning, listen right here. Let me close with asking you this question. Fathers, husbands, Especially, are there objects, are there activities, are there patterns of behavior, are there patterns of thought and speech, are there addictions or constant attitudes that need to be purged from your home? If so, please do it now before the king comes back. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we long for your presence. I long for your presence. This world needs more than anything your kingship and your presence. And may our homes, our little temples, may they be found to be clean and pure. Places of worship to you and to nothing else. May the things that we put on our TVs and may the books that we read, the websites we visit, the the speech that we utter, may it be reflective the fact that we are being built into a living temple but with living stones. And may Yeshua, our Messiah, our rock and our redeemer, may he come soon and in our day. In his name we pray. Amen. So we got a little bit of time for question and answers. Uh, if you have any questions for me about Mark 11 or about anything discussed today, now's your chance. Okay, let's see your hand. Okay, you're getting back to Mark 11. Let somebody else go first. <laughs> yeah, Bob. I just find it interesting. We have a fig tree, and usually you'll see figs growing on it before the leaves come on. Mm hmm. Interesting. Interesting observation. He said, uh, sorry, I need to repeat people. He said, we have a fig tree, and he said, oftentimes, we will see figs on the tree before we even see leaves on the tree. Which is, gives credence to the idea that this tree, by having leaves, was giving the impression, I have fruit to feed you, when it didn't. It was hip hip hypocritical. It was deceiving, yeah. Any other questions? Did you find it, Carol? Yeah.
Yeah, yeah, they were in season. Yeah, especially if we have the appearance that we're, we should have fruit. What she's saying is like, we should have fruit in and out of season. Especially if we give off the appearance that we have the fruit. If we advertise that we're fruitful, but we're really not. Um, we should do the, maybe less advertising and more being fruitful. Good point, thank you. I feel like this microphone's popping a lot today. <laughs> Been trying to soften my peas. Any other questions or comments? It's good to see Howard and Jackie back today. We've been praying for you guys. It's awesome to have you today. Yeah. Yeah. You got a question or a comment? fortress that Herod built. Uh, I think it's called Herodotus. Herodias? And uh, he actually moved a mountain. <laughs> it's really cool. If you look it up later, you can see um, it, was, it was a fortress built inside of a mountain, kind of on top of inside a mountain called Herodotus. Any other questions? Yeah, you're done. Um, I noticed one thing that we kind of forgot in Mark, but it says, forbid anyone to carry anything heavy merchandise through the temple grounds. Yeah. Yeah, that is a good point. Yeah, in Mark he says he forbid them, right Mark? He forbid them from carrying any merchandise into the temple even, yeah. And it's not mentioned in other Gospels, yeah. Um, well, I guess, you know, have you ever been to a big church or something? And, you know, there's there's like a bookstore out front? No, I have. Yeah, I don't want Um. Sometimes, uh, sometimes that that aspect of walking into a place of worship can become a distraction, uh, like a, whether it be a coffee house or you know, in our faith, Shabbat is so holy that we would never it would never occur to us to set up like a place where you can sell things as people come in that we would have like merchandise and stuff. You know, I've been to a messianic synagogue, unfortunately, where the rabbi's wife, around this time of the service, the rabbi's wife would like run out and begin to set up the Judaica booth and begin to sell like necklaces and all that kind of stuff as people are leaving. And we just wouldn't think to do that because it's Shabbat and we don't do business on Shabbat. We don't make a profit or exchange goods and services on Shabbat. Um, there's a different time and place for that. You know, it's not bad, obviously. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think it kind of reminds me of, of Nehemiah where he like shut the temple gates quickly and the city, actually the city gates on Shabbat. Um, because I think I think what he's saying is like humans have a tendency uh, we we like love these little round metal objects that cannot they, they cannot do anything for us in in, in and of, uh, of themselves like I can't dig a well for me if I set it on the ground it's not going to dig a well it's not going to bake bread for me or grow wheat for me but we love this stuff and it's like it's like mammon and he, he's saying like basically I, I think he's saying. I'm not even gonna let you come in this place because this place like that's wholly consecrated to the worship of, of, of our Heavenly Father. And if I if I let a single merchant come in, then it's gonna be like it's gonna turn into this big monopoly of you know this flea market of trying to sell things and change money. But yeah, I don't know. That's a good observation. Yeah, Brian. Yeah, yeah, Nehemiah did, yeah. Yeah. Brian. Uh, 
I love doing Q&A because <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't see that. I didn't think of that. It's beautiful. That, yeah, the, what he's saying basically is maybe the Gospels are mentioning pigeons because if you, if you had sarat or leprosy, we could say, and you were cleansed of it, then you go to the temple and you would bring pigeons as your offering for cleansing in the temple. That's a really cool connection. Yeah, I think about that. Anything else? Yeah. Something I noticed that was really interesting was uh, in John chapter two. Immediately after the uh, the story where he was telling or driving out the money changers and everybody, mm-hmm. almost the next verse they ask him, "What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things?" And he answered them, "Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up." Mm-hmm. So that kind of like- yeah. So he's saying in John two, right after purging the temple in John two, they say, "What authority are you doing these things?" And he says, "What again?" Destroy this temple and in three days I will bring it back up. Yeah. Right? Talking about the impending instruction. Maybe giving them a warning in John 2. Hey, if you don't, if you don't clean up your act here, uh, next time I visit, uh, it's going to be not the prognosis that you want. So, any other questions or comments? Very good observations. Thank you. Cool. All right. Well,